Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. the Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. And we've finished the Hilo experience. We are officially returned from tour. <laughs> it sound like we were doing one every night for 30 dates. Not quite, but it felt it felt enough. Look, we did four. <laughs> we did four. Um, we and really we ate enjoyed a lot it. of pret sandwiches. And for anyone that didn't go, what can you? What did we do? How can you summarise what the Hilo experience was about? It's so funny when we got on stage for the first night at the Barbican. I think we realised that it was just ninety percent smut. It was smutty. It was so smutty. They love the smut. <laughs> our audience cannot get enough. Do you know what I've really learned about our audience in the last couple of months? They just love a bawdy comment. <laughs> I think it's quite hard to make the high end of the high-low work on stage. It'd be so boring. So it would also be quite intense, Yeah, I think. So we went the low end. Oh, we got straight into the paddling pool of the high-low. We did listener stories. We did some of our favourite stories that we've... um, Stories and facts over the last few years. Mine is that 7% of Americans think that chocolate milk comes from brown cows. Mine is obviously the bridesmaid who was told she could wear anything she wanted at her sister's wedding and dressed up as a giant inflatable (laughs) T-Rex, which we loved chewing over. And we did some of our favourite readings from some of our favourite books and we had a self-help from the past section. I think that was my favourite section. Yeah, I loved that. With Jilly Cooper's How to Stay Married from 1969 and Lynn Barber's How to Improve Your Man in Bed from 1973. Which, now, because we've had a little bookshelf that's been on tour on the road with us, (laughs) I'm so happy I have back now because you will delight in knowing that it sits next to my bed. There are some top tips in uh, there about how to improve your man in bed, such as rouge your nipples. Have a hairdo. Plat flowers into your pubic hair. Wear an Arab kaftan. Don't bite him. (laughs) Buy a waterbed. Do it underwater, but be careful. Hide your hairbrush. (laughs) (laughs) I might get them. Light a joss stick. (laughs) I might get them printed out. You should. I was going to frame it for you. Yeah, let's do it. And I might hang it above your marital bed. Just as a reminder. And some of my favourite bits from Jilly Cooper's tome was take a red towel on your honeymoon in case you get the curse. I'm still obsessed with that phrase, the curse. And don't eat contraceptive paste thinking that it's an exotic pate. We still want to know what that paste is. We were trying to work out how one applied it. So I quite like the idea that you would wear it head to toe like one of those spa mud treatments then that's not very cost-effective if you'd be getting through a tub a week. Whereas I thought you probably just isolated the area. Dolly likes it when I... She does a funny little waggly thing with her finger when she says isolate the area and it makes me feel a little bit queasy. Anyway, speaking of things we're obsessed with, 
Tell me what you're obsessed with this week. You're always obsessed with something. I've got a story I'm absolutely obsessed with. You're obsessed with something every day. I am so obsessed with this story. A vegan has been evicted from her flat after she shared pictures of herself sharing a bath with a pig that she rescued from slaughter. Alicia Day, 31, believed she was doing a good thing when she paid £30 to save Gypsy Pixie, but has been left homeless and facing criticism from experts. Alicia took the pig out around the streets of West London, where she lived, and went on the tube, attracting attention from people around her. However, she could have done more harm than good with experts saying you need a licence to move pigs and they must be kept away from other animals because of infection control. Before she handed Gypsy Pixie over to the RSPCA, she took him to Wagamama for a final meal. Buying him a tofu pad thai. And he was allowed in? <laughs> the only pictures <laughs> that I can find is him, I think, outside Wagamama. But the way that the story keeps being reported is that he literally had one of those wooden ladles in his trotters. Wonder what he thought of tofu. Yeah, do you know what I actually found out the other day about pigs? I was saying to my friend that uh, the only meat that I find you miss as a vegetarian is pork because it's just so, like fatty and salty and delicious and it's the only thing that occasionally when I miss meat I have a wave of like mm, I have a bit of pancetta she said and I'm not saying this is an argument for any vegans and vegetarians who want to get in touch with me I'm just saying it's one way of looking at it if you did want to eat pork is that apparently pigs eat anything they would eat human they can eat human bones bones they, they, they I knew they'd eat a human face but I didn't know they'd eat they can, bone. they can eat through bones so, look, this world... So why is that an argument for eating them? Because if you are a person, who I am not, who believes in an eye for an eye... Oh, right. <laughs> then you can have the odd bit of bacon sarni, because do you know what? They'd eat you too. They'd eat through your bones. Now, don't agree with that. I have to make that very clear. It's quite facile, that point of view. <laughs> but some idiot might need an argument for eating the odd bacon sandwich. I've given it to you. Fun fact from the week in return for you. Harrods are limiting Santa Claus visits to customers who spend over £2,000. Oh, how horrible. So Father Christmas becomes quite a rarefied treat. Although I do wonder if you're in Harrods doing your Christmas shopping, maybe two grand is the equivalent of, like, ten quid in Sainsbury's. (laughs) And the rapper T.I. has been heavily criticised for revealing that he takes his 18-year-old daughter to the gynaecologist every year to get her hymen checked to ensure she is still a virgin. That is absolutely disgusting. <laughs> no, it's so creepy. How have people reacted to that? Well, that's made me feel really unsettled. He said it on a podcast, and I read that the it was all quite laughy, laughy on the podcast. Was it a joke? Do you think he was making a dark joke? No, I, I don't, because he said other really weird things um, <sighs> over the last few years. And, uh, tw- oh, Twitter reacting by saying he's, yeah, fucking creepy. Yeah, that whole, like, I think we've got to really watch it culturally. It's so entrenched in us. Jermaine Greer writes about it a lot. That whole, like, protective daddy's little princess stuff. I think it's, like, really, really dark and creepy when you get to the root of what that that is all about. (laughs) And he said that the gynaecologist was like, do you realise that her hymen could have broken through, like, riding a bike or riding a horse? And he was like, she does not ride horses or bikes. Or riding a big cock, which she's totally allowed to do, lest we forget. In fact, I hope she's fucking getting it every week. (laughs) I've got one of my favourite sub-genres of trivial news, a mad bride story. A couple in America known as Pam and Edward 
recently asked friends and family for donations for their big day and managed to raise $30,000 in donations to fund their lavish wedding. The wedding was all set to take place in a couple of weeks, but Pam has cancelled the wedding. In a lengthy post on Facebook, she wrote... After much reflection and tear-filled conversations with closest family members, we have decided to cancel our upcoming winter wedding. We thank each and every one of you for your generous donations to our money fund. Can you believe we've raised over $30,000? Unbelievable. Don't worry, the money you've donated will not be spent in vain, but rather used towards a honeymoon in the coming months. After a honeymoon, we will announce a new wedding date and reopen our money fund for any further gifts. Weddings are expensive. Please stay tuned. In the meantime, I'll be updating our gift fund registry on Amazon if anyone would like to gift us something to take on a honeymoon. So when you first started reading that out, I thought that Pam had cancelled the wedding because they were breaking up. Yes, But is she she actually just postponing the wedding? Her story's all over the shop. (laughs) Basically, Pam and Edward, I've got to be totally honest, have nailed it. They wanted some trip of a lifetime. (laughs) So that's what they've raised the money for, obviously, because it's so, for some reason, because we value heterosexual monogamy more than anything else, they decided, they know that if they just said, we fancy a big trip, all of their friends would say, well, fuck off, I fancy a big trip. But if you say, we fancy the wedding of a lifetime, for some reason, everyone loses their mind and say, okay, we'll take the coat off my back, take all the money in my account, you deserve your big day. But how have their friends reacted to this? Do we know? Terribly. Yeah, exactly. So they haven't, <laughs> they haven't valued heteronormative relationships so no, much. No, they have, that... because they've put all the money into the wedding account. But when they found out that the, that the holiday... Yes, but they won't, get, they won't get their second wedding list that she's asking for. Yeah, she'll still get the holiday of a lifetime. 30 grand for a holiday. She won't get the saucepans, though, Dolly. <laughs> I feel obliged, with my journalistic integrity, to tell all of you that BuzzFeed thinks that this story is a fake. But I don't want that to negate our enjoyment of the story itself. Some wordplay for you. Do you know what shitposting means? No. It's been doing the rounds this week after BBC correspondent Laura Koonsberg mistakenly described it as a political party or campaign group writing a shitpost and then people sharing it going, ha ha ha, look how shit this post is. It is actually, according to Wikipedia, the posting of large amounts of content which are aggressively, ironically and of trollishly poor quality to an online forum or social network, in some cases intended to derail discussions or otherwise make the site unusable to its regular visitors. I can't think of an example of what that would be. Well, the example that Sarah Minarvis gave when she wrote about it for the New Statesman is one used by the shooter in the Christchurch shooting. So shortly before the shooting, he posted this long, ironic manifesto on 8chan uh, that it was time to stop shitposting and time to make a real effort just before murdering dozens of people. So in that example, it's basically a diversionary tactic. So it's posting... um, It's kind of like a political tactic, I suppose, as well, as something that could be used in um, violence or misogyny. But it's posting these sort of long, um, they can be crap, like uh, Laura's saying, but mostly that they're kind of a diversionary tactic, whether they're ironic or just in their volume, they distract and they're used on the, and they're used on the internet quite a lot. And Sarah Manavis said it may, like internet language like this may seem silly um, and it might not matter that you get the definition wrong, but it's in fact serious and that as journalists we have to realise the impact of internet language even when it seems daft because it can be a indicator 
of um, something pretty dramatic or pretty important, mm. which I think is a fair reminder. Yeah. On a lighter, wordier note, I tore out a very funny piece from GQ for you on the 34 words and phrases that no one should ever read. Oh, go on. I'll tell you some of my highlights. For the gram. Hate that. Excuse me. Yeah, I hate that. On annual leave. You haven't returned to your family after a tour of Afghanistan. You've gone to Formentera for a week. It's a holiday, call it what it is. It's so good. I'm not sure I have the bandwidth for. Yeah, that's offices. Everyone says that in offices. Learnings. It's lessons, for God's sake. Nice to e-meet you. Oh, I use that one all the time. I'm off on my holobobs. Tummy or willy if you're over the age of 12. Yeah, I hate willy. Brewski. No, this is a good list. Circle back. Hate that. Thread one, insert end number here. (laughs) And I loved, it's really wearable. It's an item of clothing. That's the point. (laughs) Do you think there are any missing? Uh, Do you know what I used to get a lot when I worked in TV and I'm so glad I never have to use again, I'm across this or are you across this? Yes, like you're splayed. I don't like that. There are lots of... Me and India actually regularly talk about the ones that are so annoying on Instagram. I think something with this one, I hate. Or just this, praise hands. Yeah, I hate that. And I hate about last night. Do you like but first coffee? (laughs) (laughs) My husband and I thought they could have also included reach out. I've banned myself from saying that. always think it sounds like reach around. Yeah. Which is something a little different. Yeah. End of play. I do EOP. Yeah, I quite like EOP. (laughs) Putting this to the top of your inbox. Hate that. I hope this finds you well. Such a twattish one to say that. Top of your inbox. Fuck off. Happy Friday. Hate Friday. Or, and this was my husband's contribution, but I actually really like this. I've never heard of this. Finally. For finally Friday. Do you know what a lot of people say on email, which makes me think about death? Happy hump day. <laughs> yes, that was one on we a Wednesday. To when I get that on a Wednesday, hi Dolly, happy hump day. I literally look at it and I see the Grim Reaper. I think about how many more hump days I have until this whole sorry business is over. <laughs> Oof, don't need to know about your hump days. Instead, <laughs> tell me what's been going on in Dolls Polls. Oh, I've got two very exciting Dolls Polls for you. <laughs> <laughs> My first Dolls Polls is about autumn and winter dating. Do you know about cuffing season? Yeah. Do you know about cuffing season, CJ? No. Cuffing season is when you're single in autumn, in the colder months, you're more likely to settle down with someone. As we head into cuffing season, more than half, 54% of singles, are wary of people who want to cuddle up in the winter months and then move on. The survey of online daters by dating app The Inner Circle suggests singles are more sceptical during this time of year because of game players who couple up in the autumn only to break up when the weather improves. This caution is justified with more than one in ten saying that they have been cuffed in the past. However, the findings show more people have far more honest intentions. Just 5% of people say they prefer to settle down in the autumn and winter months. In addition to exercising some cuffing caution, singles getting into a new relationship this season may want to initiate a conversation about Christmas gifting. The research indicates daters are divided on how long you should be together before buying presents. Mm, I've heard this. Less than a week. 8% of people say less than a week. 26% of people say one to two months. 20% of people say two to three months. These statistics literally tell us nothing. Three to six months, 14%. 
six to 12 months, 5%, and 1% of people said more than a year. So there's no really overall majority there. When would you buy a present for someone for Christmas? Well, time of dating doesn't really tell you much, does it? Because you could have been together for three months and be deeply in love and moved in. Yeah. You could have been dating for a year and both of you, you know, sort of fairly relaxed about it. I'd say on average maybe three months. So I'm pretty formulaic about the three-month watershed. I think I think a, th- a fling expires so, at, uh, at three so months. So no tongues until three months. Yes, exactly. Definitely, you don't go to bed with someone until three months in. No, I think a fling self-expires at three months. You have three months to enjoy someone casually, and then after that. And what if it expires on Christmas Day? Would you have given a gift? Or oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think I probably would after three months. I'm you quite, quite like giving gifts. I'm quite gifty. You are when I'm. Cuffing. Cuffing. <laughs> but I do think that's interesting about the cuffing thing because it definitely is a thing. I think it's when the, the nights are longer and lonelier and people look cosy. And when you see someone looking cosy, you want to just cuddle up to them. I think it's because summer is filled with optimism. Yeah. Everyone's tanned, drinking rosé, meeting up after work. Winter's really gloomy. Your options are limited. You've got to take. Got so take grim, isn't got. it? That's what I think it is. It reminded me of years Met ago. my husband in November. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember years ago, this survey reminded me of, I was talking to my friend Lauren about a guy that I really liked. And I said, oh, I saw him today and he, he had this like flannelly shirt on and he just smelt really cottony and he just looked really, really soft. And I just, I like him so much. And she was like, I don't think you want him to be your boyfriend. I think you just want a blanket. <laughs> I think you just want to lie down. I think that a lot of things in life could be explained by, I think you just want to lie down. <laughs> My second poll, Britain is a nation of desk jockeys. Half of UK employees <laughs> admit to listening to music at work in a study from new classical station Scala Radio. The findings from a poll of 2,000 employed Brits... There we go, our favourite word. Reveal that more than a quarter of us use music to block out fellow employees' noise, while in contrast, a tenth do so to avoid silence if their colleagues aren't in. The research also found that more than a third of those polled worked harder and two in five get more done when listening to music. Now, when you worked in an office, did you plug yourself in? No, it was considered quite rude. Was it? Because there was... When you work in a journalism office so I don't know newspaper or magazine there's culture of openness people asking questions a lot like and trading info did you do that did you do that uh, interview yet do you have a contact for yeah and the headphones in was always looked it would yeah I just never would have it would have been rude yeah I now listen to music all the time at home but no lyrics do you oh when you're writing just classical yeah I've listened to every classical song (laughs) under the sun but that's not to block out the noise of colleagues that's to block out the noise of my tiny friend <laughs> oh that's not Donna by the way <laughs> for a moment when you said your tiny friend this just shows how dark I am I immediately was like oh the crippling voice of self-doubt in your own head yeah obviously it's not though talking about your toddler <laughs> shows why you've got an actual life and actual problems to deal with and I'm just da, 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 self-indulgently da. sitting at home did you ever listen to music I mean, from the moment I walked into the moment I left. Never had a conversation. Uh, there was a lot of camaraderie and banter in the office I worked in. Hashtag bands. 
and um you weren't a fan of it not hugely sometimes I was in the mood but when when I was working when I was working on a production it was like being a journalist and you have to be trading information about what's going on but when I worked in tv development and I had to just be writing treatments I just couldn't deal with other people's noise but then why are we all working in offices then well, on the Hilo's sub-editor Anna Cadreorado's podcast, Is This Working?, about modern work, they ask, I think it was the episode this week, they ask, why are we all working in offices when why? they don't seem to be serving people? Such a huge expense for a company as well. Well, logistically, everyone's in the same place. So when yeah. you have to have meetings, yeah, we have to ask questions. Mm. We need to know where people are or what they're doing or inputting into systems mm. it's gonna be really I suppose it's the nature of the work isn't it because for some people as you said when you're putting together a weekly magazine or whatever or lots of different types of jobs basically the work is kind of an ongoing dialogue collaboratively all day every day also i think there's a fair point to make that if the sainsbury's employee didn't work in the sainsbury's she might not be able to do her job very well well obviously that that's true and if the security guard <laughs> couldn't work all right yes you found the flaw in my argument that not everyone works in the media (laughs) and of course emma watson hit every single headline this week after describing being single in an interview with british folk as being self-partnered what did you think of this doll i thought about what friend of the hilo leandra medine said to me last time i saw her that i think about all the time where she said there are so many radical amazing psychological or social concepts that are summed up with the dumbest word and I think self-partnered is one of them her examples were like boundaries or like self-love they're just annoying words that totally don't serve how brilliant the philosophy is and I think being self-partnered as a concept is like feminist and cool and uh, progressive and brilliant but yeah, I hate myself for saying it but it did annoy me reading that word it reminds me of uh, conscious uncoupling I... why is it annoying I'm trying to work out why I find it annoying is it just it's too pretentious whenever I hear a word like this it reminds me just of our mo- modern penchant for renaming everything in this sort of highfalutin language so for example lying on a sofa eating a pizza is no longer lying on a sofa eating a pizza. It's decompressing. Yeah, I th- yeah. I think that's. I think that's exactly what it, what's annoying about it. I think the constant renaming of everything is also a distraction technique, which allows us to dodge the quite serious cultural societal issues. Often, which in this case is the stigma of the word single or the flattening of single women mm. into spinsters. Mm. I think she's got a really good point about how women approaching the age of thirty are seen societally when they are not hitched or having kids. She told the journalist Paris Lees, if you have not built a home, if you do not have a husband, if you do not have a baby and you are turning 30 and you're not in some incredibly secure, stable place in your career or you're still figuring things out, there's just this incredible amount of anxiety. And she puts that down to this really intense subliminal messaging. Totally agree with her. So her point is really valid. The term is just... Poor woman. She just became this joke of the internet for a week. Even Lorraine Kelly said she was a wee bit annoying. Did she say that? I know, even But was Lorraine. that real Lorraine or Lorraine Lorraine? <laughs> That's a very good point. <laughs> What's come for us in the mailbag this week? 
We got a lot of emails in response to our discussion about women leaving their families off the back of an anonymous article that Pandora read in the Sunday Times. The thread that ran through them all was how much of a taboo it still is to be the woman who leaves. Here's an email from a listener whose perspective is that of the daughter of a mother who left her father. My mother left my father the day after her 31st birthday for another man. I was seven and my brother was four. I despised my mum for leaving us. I believed she didn't want us anymore and was selfish for wanting a better life with her new boyfriend. My mum's side of the family clubbed together in her absence so my dad could carry on his full-time job and we could carry on our lives. To me, my mother became someone who we had to arrange to see and wear our best clothes for and be on our best behaviour in front of. I became so detached from my mum that I completely denied her any possible physical or emotional burden I might have posed. Do you know how hard it is to tell your dad you've started your period? I'm now 23 and it's only recently that I've begun to digest her reason for leaving. She was manically depressed and utterly miserable in her marriage to my dad, who couldn't understand why she couldn't just be happy. And so she found comfort in the company of someone who listened. I like to think no one can judge anyone's situation until they have experienced it firsthand. But to make the conscious decision to leave your family as a woman must have been agonising. She is still with the man who she left us for and they are happily married, which gives me comfort that it was worth it for her. There will always be a part of me that will still never be able to rely on my mum the way I do my dad. But I don't still think of her as the neglectful brute who failed to do the one job she was given as a mother. I mean, thank you so much for sharing that story and and talking about it so honestly it's just a story you don't hear about no and it's a lot of what this girl is surmising that her mother felt Mm. is the kind of thing that was addressed in that sunday times article um that she was i think this is really interesting that she was utterly miserable and Mm. her dad didn't understand why she couldn't just be happy Mm. and 31 you know I feel like I'm still on the edge of life. I still feel like I've got this huge life ahead of me. And to feel at 31 like a miserable fate has been sealed, it would be overwhelming to me and unbearable. Such an amazingly honest letter. And I was really comforted to read that she was comforted by the fact that her mother was still with this man. Yeah, exactly. um, And that whilst she'll never have the relationship with her mum she had with her dad, she's been able to do that thing that, all of us find difficult to do, even when we haven't gone through what this girl has, which is to see her parents as people in their own right. Yeah, exactly. What have you got to recommend us this week, Panda? I rewatched a little-known film from the 90s <laughs> called Cruel Intentions. Tell you what, speaking of breaking hymens, we are a generation of women whose hymens broke to Counting Crows, I think. I Selma Blair is absolutely hilarious in it. It's such an overplayed role. She's so funny. But she's so funny as as Cecile, just with all the sort of like falling over and it's like it's quite Charlie Chaplin-y. Yeah, yeah. Totally yeah, it's so slack. <laughs> Good night, Cecile. <laughs> and it's amazing to know that in that so Ryan Philippe in that film is 25. Such a baby face. Selma Blair's 27. Reese Witherspoon was 22. But Reese and Ryan were together then. They are such a beautiful couple. It's just phenomenal. And Reese Witherspoon's jaw, she's so beautiful. And Sarah Michelle Geller dresses quite like Maddie in Euphoria. Oh, really? There's a lot of, you know how Maddie in Euphoria had like sort of like a lot of 
kind of coloured eyeshadow and those twisty gel bits of hair mm. and her sort of bright lame clothes. Like the clothes in Euphoria are amazing. Yeah. And a lot of them are quite 90s, I well, think. Well, it all just comes around, doesn't it? Yeah, um, Sarah Michelle Gellar. She, I really remember from that film that Sarah Michelle Gellar, this is a word from the 90s that I used to use a lot in the hairdresser, had great feathers. You know that, like, layering right at the front of your chin? She had fabulous feathers. Just literally the last thing I would want to do with my hair now. Feathers. I'd love to do that. Rewatching it as a grown-up, did you spot anything you missed as a teenager when you watched it? I tell you what I did appreciate is the length of the film. Oh, in what way? Well, 20 years ago, films were sort of an hour and a half, an hour and 40. Mm. And now your average film is two hours 15. Yes. It's the perfect length for a film. Mm. But interestingly... It did feel like it sped through the narrative a bit. Mm. They do go from, because you know at the end where they are just so beautifully in love and amazing bit where she gets his diary printed. Oh, so good. And the crucifix is pulled off by the I new I love the cokey crucifix. But they do literally fall in love. That You know, it goes from a bet to he's in love within a day. Mm. Which I suppose is quite Shakespearean. That's I was about to say, it's very Shakespearean, that plot. Well, it was based on uh, Dangerous Liaisons. All those 90s films, these tenuous links to literature. In Dangerous Liaisons, does it happen very quickly as well? Actually, no, I haven't read that. That's the book that's in letters, isn't it? Les Liaisons Dangerous. Yeah, I haven't. I've got it. It's one of those books that collects dust on my shelf. I'd really like to read it. Well, in the meantime, you can just watch Cruel Intentions on Netflix. You've given me a hankering. It's like when I gave you a hankering for Sliding Doors. The minute someone talks about one of those 90s films, you have to go watch it. I think that that is actually one of the best. I was debating between watching that or Romeo and Juliet, and I I think I made the right call. I also really enjoyed a short podcast series on BBC Sounds by the comedian Twana Main called Black Woman, which explores her identity as a black woman who was adopted by a white mother. Her style is really relaxed and deadpan. But obviously what she's saying is deeply political. There's, I think, five episodes that are 13 minutes each and I really hope it gets recommissioned. She's such a joy to listen to. She's very funny and very thoughtful. And I came across a natty little book this week whilst doing research for something I'm writing at the moment and I think it's a really thoughtful, accessible way to access a giant question, which is, is the world getting better or worse? What do you think, Dolly? I think both at the same time. What do you think? I deliberately asked you that massive question because I thought you'd be like, what the fuck do I know? I think, I think a bit of both. So a little just, bit of this, a little bit of that. So just a, that's such a, um, a whiffly answer, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I know. God, that's a very thin book. I told you. Nice little bit. It's a transcript of a debate. It's called Do Humankind's Best Days Lie Ahead? And it's a transcript. It's so thin. It's a transcript of a debate between the scientist Stephen Pinker and the writer Matt Ridley versus two of my faves, philosopher Alan Botton and pop science writer Malcolm Gladwell. You and Alan Botton get a room. Held in Ontario, Canada in 2015 as part of the Monk Debates series. So it's a debate that's then been um, transcribed. Broadly speaking, Pinker and Ridley argue that humankind's best days lie ahead because of the arc of progress. Yeah. For example... Child mortality has gone down by two thirds in the last 50 years. Malaria mortality down by 60%. Oil spills in the ocean down by 90%. Wagamama have done the hot cuts. <laughs> and the world economy has shrunk in one year since World War Two. So by that theory, it's, you know, it's the, it's the theory of progress. Things can only get 
better as we um, eliminate disease. That's very cheering, actually, to, to be presented with those facts. Boston and Gladwell, on the other hand, argue that uh, the nature of fear has changed. It's no longer famine for many countries, um, but the quest for perfection and the attempts to be happy, they argue, are thwarting the idea that our best days lie ahead. Um, and de Botton says, you know, you may well say that the quest for perfection and the attempts to be happy are a rich person's problem. But 22 countries in the world are rich and this is relevant because the rest of the world are trying to get rich, which yes. means that those countries are looking at what these countries are doing and then hopefully eventually... So he says, you know, in 500 years, Swaziland will be where Switzerland is. But I don't believe that necessarily uh, the world will be better than it was. I thought it was an interesting way of looking at that. That with, Very interesting. That with the arc of progress, where we hope more countries will get richer, that they'll also face those problems so they aren't irrelevant. And he introduces me to the term boosterism, which flattens things into, OK, well, we've won that, that's a success. So he says when we're talking about um, humanity, we shouldn't submit to boosterism. So, OK, but so many less people are dying of malaria, therefore life is better now. He says, look at the nature of the risk. But there's there's a lot more in here. And God, this sounds so fascinating. It's so easy to read. It's incredibly engaging. I don't think you often get to see such diverse viewpoints in the same debate because they're firmly opposed to each other. Yeah. It's done in such a civilised manner. They're obviously mm. all familiar with each other's work. They respect each other. Um, it's refreshing to read a debate, which is... There's the occasional funny non-intellectual dig, for example, about Alan de Botton's baldness or... <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell's curly hair but in general it's very um and they don't shift you know it's not like in, it's not like at the end they're like oh thank you so much I really um, I really agree with you like they, it's not it's not that these are men with very very different ideas and they're looking through very different lenses so. exactly because it feels like and actually having said initially this is how fickle and stupid I am initially going yes I agree with the first obviously I agree agree with de Botton and Gladwell in that what the lens that they look through is psychological, whereas the lens, the more positive argument is through... Science and environment. Is science, environment, economic. And that's where often I get... I think I let my emotions lead so much in my politics, which I actually don't think is such a bad thing. And I think to be emotionless in politics normally is an indicator of immense, immense privilege. But mm. it's often, so often I find when you're talking about political theory or theory of um, how humans live... It's about people refer to those structures rather than that psychology. I think that's where Alan de Botton is actually very interesting because sometimes I find it hard to reconcile the things that I'm very interested in um, sociologically are things that are middle class problems. Mm. And I feel a bit bad sometimes for how much they do divert me and how interested I am in them. And then I read something the other day that said... Yes, these are middle-class problems, but the middle class is growing bigger every year. And the what is either side of it is growing mm. smaller. Yes. Which is great. Yeah. But it also means that the problems are not niche in the same way, essentially to say, you know, oh, well, how lucky for you that you have to worry about being happy. Um, it is actually important and it is relevant and it's not necessarily a niche problem. And I think that's what's really interestingly explored mm. in here. At the same time, you could argue there's a real emphasis now on um, 
but am I happy and am I living my best life? And it's a nice salient reminder from uh, Stephen Pinker and Matt Ridley that um, actually there's a lot of other stuff going on. Yeah. And here's what we've achieved. And let's stay focused on the macro as much as we are on the micro. But also I think it's important to acknowledge that reducing the lives and the temperaments and the worries of people who live in poverty or the working class to be that as solely survivalistic is incredibly patronising and reductive. There, These are still people who have exactly the same concerns about self and contentment and family and identity that people with more time on their hands have. And I think to suggest otherwise is pretty offensive, actually. I think it's not an either or, and obviously for the purpose of that debate, they had to mm. they had to separate. And actually, they weren't talking about the value of these problems. They were talking. They were staying very, you know, um, they were staying aligned with that debate, which is: Have we had our best days? Or are they ahead yeah. of us? That was the broader picture. Um, but well, what a riveting book! Yeah, it's really, really interesting. And haven't been rude about how small it is. <laughs> no, perfect. <laughs> it's perfect. Perfect, sorry. Dolly, what have you been enjoying this week? I'm evangelical about a film I've seen, Panda, and I'm just desperate for you to watch it. It's on Amazon Prime. It's expensive. You can buy it for 10 quid, but it's worth every penny. Also, that's cheaper than most cinema tickets in London. Yeah. And I don't know about other people who've watched it, but I, I'm going to watch it again and again and again. I've got to be totally honest... I have struggled with Joanna Hogg films in the past. They are at a glacial pace, normally, and they are incredibly intense and um, often quite sparse in plot and dialogue. And I've basically always felt I'm not quite clever and avant-garde enough for them. (laughs) (laughs) To fill in the gaps yourself. Yeah, exactly. Um, But this was just the most captivating thing I've seen in ages. It's my favourite film of 2019. It stars Honor Swinton Byrne as the protagonist and then her real life mother, Tilda Swinton, plays her on-screen mother. Amazing. And then the love interest, the leading man, is played by Tom Burke. And it's, I think, I use the word written loosely because I think she doesn't really write dialogue or script. It's mostly improvised. But that's still definitely, like, authored and directed by um, Joanna Hogg. Um, it's exec produced by Martin Scorsese and a very interesting fact I don't think I've told you this the man who plays uh, Tilda Swinton's husband the main character's father in it is my mate's dad because Joanna Hogg for slightly smaller roles because it's all about total instinctive authenticity will go and find real people who do that real job and uh just put them in a room and well kind of like I think she auditioned them auditions them um but puts them in a room and just allows the kind of genuine expertise of that person and who they are to permeate through the scene so the the character is a farmer a middle class farmer in his 60s and my friend's dad is a middle class farmer in his 60s so I watched the film just seeing James there it was so it was so trippy and he was so, so good. And it's my friend Ed, who's a film critic, was telling me that he, she does this a lot with her films. And it does add this just... Realism. Realism that's just exquisite. And it's a pretty heavy film. It's, it's based on her time as a young film student in 80s London, 
uh, fans of 80s music it has a fabulous soundtrack <laughs> and it's about falling in love with a kind of very charming but troubled older man and um it follows their dynamic and their relationship and the intensity of it as well as um her kind of relationship with creativity and her relationship with film and how she manages this very full-on relationship this very full-on romantic relationship at the same time um the language is i didn't actually know when i was watching it that it was so improvised but now that i've read that it makes total sense it's so organic and uh hyper real and the chemistry and the power play between the romantic couple is the most recognizable and uncomfortable thing to watch and the, and the thing that i think she nails that i realized when i was watching it is so difficult to do when you're writing about men and women in love and i've tried to do it and i've definitely failed at doing it in the past um in scripts is you have to understand why this young female protagonist would fall so so deeply in love with this tortured intellectual brooding acerbic witty debonair erudite man you have to completely understand and sympathize why she would melt into him and lose herself in him while also watching it seeing red flags and thinking no why are you falling in love with him why are you letting why are you giving yourself over to him and to do that to nail that duality simultaneously is so hard for an audience member to sympathize with her as well as fear for her and it's it's just a masterpiece in that I'm not going to say much more because I don't want to ruin any of the plot. I think Honor Swinton is an incredible young talent. I think Tom Burke is, like, I'm running out of superlatives, completely breathtaking in his performance. I felt winded by it afterwards. And it's a very specific type of English man that I think he captured so well. And actually, I read an interview with him in The Guardian afterwards and it was based, he was, that character's based on a real-life close relationship that Joanna Hogg with a real-life man. And apparently people who have seen the film and who knew the man in real life have said it is, it is almost haunting to watch it because of how accurate it was, uh, his, portray- his portrayal was of this um, very troubled person. Um, yeah, as I said, run out of superlatives. I'm begging everyone to watch it because it's just, beautiful and devastating i think tom burke might have played cormoran strike in jk rowling's um robert galbraith yes thrillers yes i think that i actually read today i've become completely obsessed with tom burke i i absolutely love the cormoran strike books um the ones that she writes under her alter ego pen name robert galbraith um they were on there was not there was one on telly i think fairly recently really really good crime thriller he's very good in that well i was googling him this morning because i'm now just like totally head over heels head over heels obsessed with him and he i saw that he was filming one of those adaptations with holiday granger yeah she's great in it as well she's having a moment yeah i love holiday granger yeah she was in the um capture that i spoke about recently on the bbc yeah and she was in animals as well which i loved yes a big moment for her yeah and anything else you've been enjoying this week, Doll? I feel like I'm the last person on earth to read the prose poetry book, which is akin to iconic, called By Grand Central Station I Sat Down and Wept. I've never read it either. Have you heard of it? Yes. 
So I hadn't heard of it, and then someone mentioned the name, and I, it's the most perfect title. I think I I've, think ever I've actually heard. wept in Grand Central Station as well. Oh, darling, have you? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a poem. It's a, to call it a poem, I actually think is quite misleading. It's kind of like um, a poem. Well, it's called po- prose poetry. It's kind of like poetic prose, <laughs> uh, written by uh, Elizabeth Smart in 1945. For anyone who isn't aware, it's an account of her real-life love affair with the poet George Barker, which was incredibly intense and highly passionate. The story goes that she found a book of his poetry in London in a bookshop in the 1930s, and she became completely beguiled and infatuated with him, and uh, started writing to him and, th- and apparently she began writing the story of the two of them before they even met each other he was married he flew over to see her and his wife came over with him she had an 18 year relationship with him and they had four children and his wife was still on the scene yeah cool blimey the book sort of loosely travels through the story of their relationship but is less narrative driven and more tells the story of her interior life of her heart as she goes through the various cycles of this very unique love of obsession and limerence and devotion and heartbreak and longing and devastation and it's basically just a book about this woman's emotions and what I've since read is that what was so radical about it at the time is that writings, writing about one's emotions was a privilege of male writers. You know, think about romantic poets. And women's emotions were dismissed as something that, that were kind of hysterical and trivial mm. and silly. So this book, which is now, as I say, a cult book and seen as one of the greatest portrayals of passion of all time, which is so raw and deep and energised and eloquent about the delight and devastation of love, at the time it would have been a shocking breakthrough piece of work. And to be quite honest, it's so intimate. It feels pretty shocking even now to read it. And it's it's hard. I think it's like, I think as a fellow romantic, you'd find it a difficult read because in equal parts, you kind of long to feel the depths of love that this woman articulates. And it charges you up as you read it. And it's exhausting because not only this is obviously a woman who just was deeply 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 in love in a way that I think most of us probably (laughs) won't know in our lifetime but also squeeze me (laughs) but as in it when you read it squeeze me when you read it you don't know how she could operate every day feeling this burden of emotion it's so intense and pair that with the fact that not only was he married he also was a kind of famous flounder. He went on to have 15 children. Maybe that's why it was so intense, because she never really had him. Mm. She felt like she never really had his love. It was always divvied out across multiple different families. If only the film He's Not That Into You was around in 1945. I mean, I would rather have less burning love and not have to share my baby daddy with three other women <laughs> it's a different it's it's like it, it's at a, the same time i'm not that's not like a comment on divorce i mean like the simul the simultaneousness of it all yeah it's a difficult read because as you know i am a hopeless romantic and i do feel like i've got to be honest i do feel like envious when i read this book and i and i read these words describing her experience of infatuation but God, it came at a cost. I'd like to do a reading from it, if that's okay. I think you might be in love with me by the end of it, Panda. 
I'm possessed by love and have no options. When the Ford rattles up to the door five minutes, five years late, and he walks across the lawn under the pepper trees, I stand behind the gauze curtains, unable to move to meet him or to speak, as I turn to liquid to invade his every orifice when he opens the door. More single-purposed than the new bird, all mouth with his one want, I close my eyes and tremble, anticipating the heaven of actual touch. When we lie near the swimming pool in the sun, he comes through the bamboo bushes like land emerging from chaos. Oh, God. Pulls me apart, this book. But I am the land, and he is the face upon the waters. He is the moon upon the tides, the dew, the rain, all seeds and all the honey of love. My bones are crushed like the bamboo trees. I am the earth the plants grow through, but when they sprout, I also will be a god. It has happened. The miracle has arrived. Everything begins today. Everything you touch is born. The new moon attended by two enormous stars. The sunny day fading with a glow to exhilaration. All the paraphernalia of existence. All my sad companions of these last 20 years. The pots and pans. Ribbons of streets. Wilted geraniums. Thin children's legs. All the world solicits me with joy. Leaps at me electrically. Claiming its birth at last. We all remember that feeling, don't we? We walk around and you feel like the world's just begun. And it's funny, and I, I don't know if this is because I'm tired or old or both, but you you feel, you know, yearning when you read mm. that. And I, I just feel the tired bit. Mm. I, have, I have no bandwidth for tumult anymore. Mm. Mm. Tumult has left the building. That's why I think it's such a rich piece of writing, because there is no tumult at that point. There is, on, there is only bliss and you want the bliss without the tumult to quote your boyfriend alan de botton i want enduring bliss pandora (laughs) (laughs) support for the hyla comes from olverum natural well-being since 1931 i must lay my cards on the table here i am obsessed with olverum bath oil when it was confirmed they were sponsoring us i was fizzing with joy because it is one of my favorite products in the whole world in fact if i could only use one bathroom product forever i think it would be a bottle of olverum olverum bath oil is a unique aromatic blend of 10 essential oils with multiple therapeutic benefits it relaxes muscles help you sleep like a baby eases stress lightly moisturized skin calms the airways and dolly's own contribution allegedly aids hangover recovery like nothing else Right, let me take a moment to really dig into this. I have written and talked extensively before about how I think that a bath with olverum bath oil in is the best hangover remedy. It's this very potent, clean, fresh, herbal smell that words can't really do justice to, and it just wipes hangovers clean like a highly effective brain and soul dishcloth. The sole dishcloth, I like that. And it's also so good when you have a cold. It's like a magic potion and is so, so powerful as a smell. You only need a very small amount, which is great because it means you can really eke out a bottle. We were very excited to hear that Olverum has recently launched two new body oils, a super dry oil and an ultra nourishing one, which have won several international beauty awards. Olverum products all have a gorgeous unisex fragrance and make a great gift. They are a sumptuous indulgence that leave your skin hydrated, your mind calm and your body refreshed. 
One final fun fact for you. During the Second World War, the secret recipe for Olvera and Barthol was considered so special that it was buried for safekeeping. Love it. Get your very own bottle of Dolly's favourite hangover slayer online at olverum.com, O-L-V-E-R-U-M.com, where they ship globally. Thank you very much to Olverum. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Our author guest today is Megan Phelps Roper, whose new memoir, Unfollow, is about leaving the Westboro Baptist Church, a fundamentalist church in Kansas made famous by the 2007 Louis Theroux documentary, The Most Hated Family in America. The Westboro Baptist Church first hit the news in 2005 when it began picketing the funerals of dead soldiers with signs that read, Pray for More Dead Soldiers, or condemning homosexuality with signs that read, God Hates Fags. Megan left the church in 2012 and her book charts a journey from hatred to hope. For anyone who isn't aware of the Westboro Baptist Church and what it preaches, would you like to describe in your own words the specifics of how it operates and how you operated within it? Yes. um, Westboro sees the Bible as the literal, infallible word of God, and they believe that their understanding of it is the only legitimate version, interpretation. Um, And so what they do, when I was five years old, we started protesting. You know, Westboro sees it as the embodiment of the commandment to love thy neighbor, um, to go and warn people when you see them sinning, because that is how the only, you're giving them the only way that they can avoid curses from God in this life and hell in the next. And so that is, that's how they see their, you know, the protesting. But for outsiders, what they look at the signs and they see is uh, a lot of hate. Um, Westboro would call it the hatred of God. Um, but so there's this enormous disconnect between how Westboro views their, their message and their, and their methods and how the rest of the world does. So, um, so we would go out from the time I was five years old every single day in my hometown, Topeka, Kansas. And then, but also every week, you know, across the country, we would be, you know, um, traveling and protesting, you know, talking to journalists and documentary filmmakers, all in an effort to preach this message that we saw as, you know, this divine word of God that everyone needed to hear, um, especially because very, very few people believe what Westboro believes. So um, the notion that the, they're not, nobody else is getting this from, from other people. So we have to be the ones to go out and, and preach this message. For anyone who's not familiar specifically, because it was incredibly specific what those messages were. Right. So initially it was about the LGBTQ community. So God Hates Fags became their you know, flagship. You know, it's, it's the primary message that, that people know them for. Um, but it very quickly moved beyond you know, that community and became anybody outside of the church who believed differently, which is everybody outside of the church. Mm-hmm. So we would protest uh, Jews, God Hates Jews. You know, other Christians, um, anywhere where people gathered. So sporting events and concerts and um, 
protested the Nutcracker. We, you know, God hates Christmas, so we would go on you know Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and protest every every service we could find, you know, anywhere in our city. Um, so it, it was there was always a reason, you know, some impetus, some some sinfulness um, that we needed to go and, and preach against. Eventually, um, that also included um, protesting military funerals. Um, my family saw military funerals as uh, my grandfather called them patriotic pep rallies. The church was started by my grandfather. So he would call them pa- patriotic pep rallies, you know, where people are going and saying, you know, God bless America. And, you know, he would say, God isn't blessing America. God is cursing America. That's why you have this dead soldier. This is a, a curse from God and not a blessing. Um, and so for for him and for my church, everything bad that happened, any death or tragedy or, you know, some, you know, the weather, all of it, it was an act of God um, in punishment for sinful activities. And so that was, that was how we saw the entire world. The blessings of God were, were only for the penitent and the fact that God was cursing the rest of the country. We, we only would focus on the terrible things that would, were happening to other people um, as, as proof that, um, that God hated them. And so my reaction on 9-11, growing up in this culture that, that celebrated death and tragedy rather than mourning them, um, was, was that when, so when, um, when, you know, when the towers came down, my reaction was awesome. That's literally, I was 15 years old and, you know, that had just been, I had been so inculcated with this ideology for so long that um, it was, it was this instinctive response. Mm. Reading on follow, it was, it kind of felt like the more people didn't understand the more you all pulled together and it strengthened you rather than making the church feel like okay well maybe this isn't a mess maybe we got it wrong it it made them feel stronger in their mission and the church and i think this is quite a large factor in it the church is largely compiled of your family members so there was that double layer of of closeness absolutely and although a small clutch of you have now left there were many in the church because your mother was one of 13 you are one of 11 and one of the most interesting things i think about the church is that you couldn't be written off as hillbillies or uneducated which is often the reason given for having a very limited or radical worldview you consumed masses of pop culture, you read widely, almost every single one of your family is a rite of passage trained to be a lawyer. And your grandfather, Fred Phelps, who started the church, was first made famous for his civil rights work. So how is it that a family who was so informed in so many ways and so compassionate to one another, because the love you had as a family is tremendously deep, how could they have such a binary and cruel view of what was right and wrong? So for them, because they see the Bible as the infallible word of God, you know, that it was something that we had to change our thoughts and feelings to be in line with the Bible as we understood it. That was always the controlling principle. You know, I I write about that, that verse that my mom would quote all the time about how our duty is to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And so any thought or feeling we had that was against, against, you know, the words of the Bible, again, as Westboro understood them, there, you know, you 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 have this sense that the deficiency is in you, not with the, those principles, um, and so there's this total lack of confidence in your own thinking. You know, the only way that so you mentioned the, you know our education and and the fact that we read widely and you know consumed pop culture and like we were not at all cloistered away from the world. 
Um, we were very much in it. Um, but we, we had been trained, the vast majority of the people in the church grew up in the church and so had been indoctrinated, you know, all of their lives. And, and so you basically learn to use all of the tools, everything that you, you know, everything that you learn at school, um, any skill you acquire, like it is all in service of promoting this message, promoting and defending this message. And, you know, there's this, I, I've used this analogy before. Uh, it's, it's like being inoculated against outside ideas because mm-hmm. they, before you ever are exposed to those ideas, they teach you exactly the kinds of arguments that people are going to make and tell you why they're wrong, the chapter and verse, and have you memorize it. So before, you know, I'm standing out on the picket line from the age of five and you're being put in a position to defend these ideas, you are constantly being challenged, but there's always people around you teaching you, okay, well, here's the answer to that question. This is why for me, like, so it it becomes this very closed system. And so, you know, for me and a lot of other people I, I have spoken to who have left similar groups, um, there's it's the fact of the discovery of internal inconsistency that is such a huge part of your ability to eventually come to question the system as a whole. Mm-hmm. But within the system, because there is such once you accept those initial premises, which are you know hugely you know it's not like anybody could just do that. Um, but once you do, it's. Um, it's everything. There is an internal logic and consistency that that makes it seem like, oh my God, they are right. This is unquestionable. Everything that they've told me is going to happen has happened. People are responding exactly the way I've been told they would respond. And so it just becomes confirmation of, of their righteousness. I'm so interested in this idea of scripture and how it was used as the sort of main scaffolding yep. to hold up Westboro Baptist Church. And as Pandora mentioned, everyone within the church training to be a lawyer, when I read that, it all made sense because it's the scripture is then your evidence yeah. and you are trained to argue a case. So even now when I, when I read you and when I listen to you in interviews, it feels like you have this like rich dossier of scripture that you can reel off, yeah. um, which you must have done for so many years to be able to support this this incredibly isolated um, place. I was wondering now that you've left the church, how difficult has it be, has it been to shake off that scripture? Oh, it's definitely all still there. Like yeah. I, I can't help like you know having these verses called to mind in random situations all the time. Um, but it's it, now it's a lot more, obviously I think about it a lot more critically. So I'm yeah. not religious anymore. And I eventually, after I left the church, came to this place where I realized that I didn't have to accept the bad parts of the Bible because, because I believe the good parts or to reject the good parts because of the bad parts, which is like, you know, it's a very, like, it's how you read any book, right? You can read something and realize that it's, um, you know, that there are good things, good ideas and bad ideas within this, you know, covers of the same the same book. And so it's not, it's not that that's a very, um, you know, unique way of seeing things. It's just that for me to see the Bible that way, to be able to see it as, you know, a human document, a human attempt to understand, um, like it definitely took me a while to get to that kind of, that, that level of, um, to think critically about it. Um, and you know, it's been really fascinating, honestly, because of coming from this place where, we had such certainty about how the Bible should be viewed. And we were so sure that we had the right way. So that whenever I find like, you know, there's been many, many times since I left where I'll come upon the same passage that I had either, either one that we memorized and talked about all the time, or just one that I happen to remember. And, 
and realize that there is a completely different way of viewing the same passage, the same story um, that that I now find, you know, beautiful. Westborough um, holds uh, many comparisons with other uh, radical religious groups, but what's particularly interesting about the people uh, against who they expressed what you would think would be hate, so picketing a dead soldier's funeral, you know, pray for more dead soldiers, or God hates bags, you would say, when people would say, but why do you hate them so much? Why do you hate someone that served the country? Why do you hate someone who just happens to be gay? And the response from the church would be, we don't. God hates them. We love them the most. Mm -hmm. And that was a really interesting... There's always a, it's, it's the legal, it's like you're going court constantly. Yeah, yes, yes, exactly. It's just that rationalisation constantly. Like your role in the church was as Twitter correspondent. Right. And people would throw, obviously, a lot of criticism at you. They would tell yeah. you you're despicable and evil. And you were, your replies were very jolly. <laughs> you, know, you, were always, you were always upbeat because you were so certain yeah. of, of the role that you were playing in the church and the church was playing. And it was on Twitter where you were preaching the church's views that you or relaying the church's views that you started to have some conversations that and it wasn't that you were having those external conversations because as you say you had been privy to that for a long time it was that those conversations a lot of the time were actually with people who were also very well read in the old testament or the new testament and that led to your having these the internal flaws that you that you speak of. One of your Twitter correspondents, CJ, you rather poetically ended up marrying and having a child with. But social media played a pivotal role in your liberation from the church and also fake news started to play a role mm-hmm. as the elders in the church began um, spreading false rumours that you had been picketing, say, the royal wedding. Mm-hmm. And it was when you saw that these lies were directly conflicting what the scriptures were saying, which obviously is that you must preach truth, combined with those conversations you were having on Twitter Mm -hmm. with people who then turned out to sometimes be friends and allies once you'd left the church, which is amazing. Um, That really led to your kind of leaving in 2012. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I I got on Twitter in 2009 and my only goal was to publish this message, you know, just, just like every other part of my life organized around this idea of publishing the truth of God. And so that was my, you know, initial, that was why I got on. And, you know, the way that we viewed outsiders, we would say things like, um, these people have nothing to offer us. We have nothing to learn from these people. Like this should be a one-way conversation. Like we are preaching at them, but that's not how Twitter works, right? There's, you know, immediately people started sending me messages and very many of them, um, the vast majority of them, I would say were, the same kind of hostility and provocation that I experienced on the picket line, just kind of reflecting back that very hostile attitude. Um, but then that, that we approached others with, but then there were these people who, who could tell from the way that I was communicating, that I was sincere, that I really believed in the value and the goodness and the righteousness of what we were doing. And so they started to kind of back off of that kind of hostility and started asking questions and started, you know, we started having these genuine, real conversations. 
So as, you know, these questions and doubts started piling up over time, where it finally occurred to me that, um, that we might be wrong. You know, I was in uh, a friend's basement painting with my sister, and, you know, she had been one of the only people in the church that I could talk to about my doubts who didn't just immediately respond with, like, go talk to the elders. They'll set you straight. Like, they clearly they know something that we don't. You know, there's always, again, the assumption is we're wrong, not them. She was the only person, my sister, who would say, you know, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't seem right um, without qualification. And so as I'm going through all of these things in my mind, there came this moment where I was painting in the basement with my sister, who was the only person who would say unqualified that, you know, this doesn't make sense. Um, this seems wrong. And uh, so as we're painting, all these doubts and questions are running through my mind. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out we have all these things that seem wrong, and yet Westboro is the truth of God. And one of those, you know, one of those had to give. So my arm continued to drag the paintbrush up and down, but my pulse and thoughts were racing. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. I couldn't believe how our love within the church had been warped beyond recognition by the elders' unscriptural will to punish by their implacable demands for unquestioning obedience, by their pernicious need for superiority and control. They had developed a toxic sense of certainty in their own righteousness, seizing for themselves the role of the ultimate arbiter of divine truth, and they now seemed willing to lay waste to anyone who disagreed with them. It was a heinous arrogance and sinfulness that could not be denied. And in a moment of horrifying clarity, I finally saw what had eluded me for so long— we had all been behaving in the exact same way toward outsiders. It was as if we were finally doing to ourselves what we had been doing to others for over 20 years. My eyes widened and my face flushed hot, overtaken by panic and shame and regret and humiliation. In the split second, it took my mind to find a way to make sense of the chaos that the church had become. What if we're wrong? What if this isn't the place led by God himself? What if we're just people? and I felt sure that it was all true. I crossed a chasm in that split second, pursuing a thought my mind had never truly imagined and now could never take back. With stark clarity, I understood that whether the church was wrong or right, I was a monster. If we were wrong, then I had spent every day of my life industriously sowing doom, discord, and rage to so many, not at the behest of God, but of my grandfather. I had wasted my life only to fill others with pain and misery. And if the church was right, then asking those questions and even beginning to consider their implications was an unforgivable betrayal of everyone I had ever loved and the ideals I dedicated my life to defending. In my mind, I was a betrayer already. I thought of my mother, and the guilt was crippling. I didn't deserve to be part of this body of believers. The Lord was done with me, and Esau, after all, already condemned. Overwhelmed by a sudden pressing need to leave that instant, Every part of my body hummed with a single vicious accusation. You don't belong. So this, you know, to have thought for my whole life that we were doing good, that in the face of all of the hatred and wrath of outsiders, that ultimately it was for this beautiful divine purpose. And then to come to that conclusion, to realize, oh my God, it was all for naught. And all of it, like it was, it was like feeling like you had this precious jewel in your hand, and then all of a sudden it turns to like poison or something. Like it's, it was just 
this obviously completely destabilizing and devastating. Um, You were 26 when you left the church and your little sister Grace, Mm -hmm. who you were painting in the basement with, was 20 when you both left. And you're kind of split on it. Part of you is envious that she got to leave when she was 20 so she would have more years of her youth to be free and to figure out who she was. But part of you also feels grateful that you got longer with your family. And that's the that's the real conflict at the heart of it for it for you, is that you don't blame your parents for the church, you know, the way you were raised, what you were um what you believed in, because they had also been indoctrinated and of course one of the saddest things and I'm sure it's an ongoing sadness for you is that when you leave the church you leave your life you are excommunicated you do not have contact with your family do you think that you would have left the church if it wasn't for twitter I don't think that I would I think in the absence of twitter so you know some people you we talked about um you know the elders who took over and started doing things that I believed were unscriptural I I believe that even then you know in the absence of twitter I likely would have found a way to justify it. I would have gone along with it. I would have always assumed that that the the problem was with me and not with them. And so, without Twitter and that those internal inconsistencies, obviously it's a counterfactual. So I, I don't know what would have happened. Maybe there would have been some other way. But I I do know that I had had many opportunities before social media to talk to outsiders and to be challenged. And it was the ongoing nature of those conversations and and the willingness of people to really dig into the mm. doctrines. Um, and the safety, as you said, yes. the physical safety. Mm-hmm. That, that, that it was, those things were essential to my ability to see outside of, outside of Westboro's ideology. Near the end of the book, there's a passage which equates your experience of Westboro within a larger context. A world in black and white, calcified into position and impervious to change, you write. You also write that as I watch the human tribal instinct play out in the era of Donald Trump, the echoes of Westboro are undeniable. The division of the world into us and them, the vilification of compromise, the knee-jerk expulsion of outsiders who violate Gruth orthodoxy and the demonization of outsiders. That's a passage that's been shared a lot on social media because it places what seems like this extraordinary radical story that you know for a lot of us reading we you're sort of shocked the whole way through actually places it in this context that we're all living in do you think that Westboro will fold in on itself or will it flourish in this political climate where we are becoming more and more polarized I think Westboro has actually been um, affected negatively by this climate and I think that's because you know, as some, some people have put it, you know, it, they have a lot of competition now. Mm-hmm. That kind of um, thinking and, and tribalism is so much more common now. They kind of get mm-hmm. lost of it. So they're not, they haven't gotten nearly as much um, publicity as they, as they used to when I was still there, um, which is a really, it's a really sad thing, you know, that, it, yeah. that it's the fact that, you know, there's so much, um, there's so much division now that, that they're just lost in it. That's a sad reason for them to not be in the news. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and seeing, you know, for me, you talked about Westboro seems like this singular experience. And that was how I felt when I, when I very first left the church. And I, I thought, I just felt very isolated and thought that there was no way that anybody was going to truly be able to understand what I had come from. And, and the, the sense that, you know, I, I would never, I just was despairing about it all. 
and very quickly started I started coming into contact with people who had had similar experiences mm. and the realization like for me it was a very hopeful thing you know to realize that Westboro the forces that made Westboro are as I write in the book very common and very human and they manifest in some strange ways at Westboro but that can also be kind of a helpful thing right because when you see your you know your perspective or or parts of like you know in, things that you would be inclined to think or feel if you see an extreme version of that it can help you recognize like what's wrong with seeing the world in in those terms this very black and white um very black and white thinking with so much certainty um and and so i think so many people have have reached out to me you know people from similar groups who say you know, I've used your book to de-radicalize members of my family who had been, you know, in churches similar to Westboro and, and churches who like people who would go to these churches that they believed similar things, but they would look at Westboro and think, oh, well, we're not, we're not like them. We're not those people. And then when they realize how, just how much they have in common, they think, oh my God, this is not something I want to be part of at all. And so that's, you know, having an extreme case can be helpful in that way. It's not just this, um, like, a way of saying, look, at least we're not that bad. I was very moved, Megan, by the dedication at the front of your book. Would you mind reading it to us? Absolutely. I think I have it memorized, but I'll make sure I get it right. To my beloved parents, Shirley and Brent, whose tenderness fills my memories, I left the church, but never you, and never will. I am humbled to be your daughter. And you talk about how you hear from people for whom this book has been so important for kind of deculting and de-radicalizing members of their family. Is that something that you hope for your own parents? Absolutely. It's something that, and I write about this a little bit at the end of the book, but I still reach out to my family regularly. And it's a very one-sided relationship. Um, you know, I send letters and, you know, when I'm in town, I leave, you know, birthday cards, um, and things in the door. Um, I send tweets. I just, I know that I was changed by this kind of gentle persistence of outsiders and people trying to reach me in spite of all of the barriers that I put up. And I know that they are well-intentioned. I believe that they are good people who have been trapped by bad ideas that they, they learned in their youth. And that there is hope for them to change. You know, when I first left, this is another another thing that I I just I thought I'm just never going to have them again. And I, you know, trying to come to terms with that, you know, f- was impossible. Um, but then I also came pretty quickly came to this moment of, like, how dare I think that way about them? I changed, and that was the very last thing I wanted to do. Yeah. It was my worst nightmare, and you know. For me to think that, like, I, I don't think there's anything unique about me. I think that I responded to those people on Twitter in a very human way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I've learned so much about like psychology since I left the church. There's this idea of um, complementary behavior. Like we are, we are wired to respond in kind. And so when people are kind to us, we tend to be kind back. When people are aggressive and you know coming after us, we we tend to be defensive non-complimentary behavior is difficult. That's what those kind people on Twitter did. So I was attacking them and they responded with kindness. Mm. And even though I had been raised to be wary of the kindness of outsiders, so my mom would quote this verse, um, that faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So even though I had been explicitly raised to be wary of the kindness of outsiders, I still responded to it because we, we, that's, it's a very human, you know, it's, it's, it's a internal biological wiring. Um, and 
so I just, I hope that they, and, and I believe that they can be reached. And I, you know, I, again, I write some at the end of the book about ways that their doctrines have changed, at least in part because of the arguments that I've been making from yes. the outside. Things yes. like they no longer hold signs that say, pray for more dead soldiers or pray for more dead kids. Um, and several others that I think, and I always have to note that it's obviously a very low bar when it comes to human decency that they're no longer praying for people to die, but it's, it's a huge step for them because of how, how long they cultivated that, that, that sense of animosity toward outsiders, that the idea of praying for the good of people who hurt you, you know, that, that is a, it's a huge, it's a huge step, I think. And I, I, I believe that there, that there's, there are more arguments to be made and ways for them to at least continue to moderate their position, even if they don't completely change everything and, and leave eventually. Is their message still very radical? They, they still have a lot of the same, you know, God hates fags, um, kinds of science, but many of their new signs are things like be reconciled to God and racism is a sin and, things like that, that many, you know, mainstream Christians would, would believe. Mm. Um, so, and for me, like, obviously having those, the other signs, you know, thank God for dead soldiers and things like that. That's obviously, um, really terrible still. But the fact that, you know, every hand that's holding something like be reconciled to God isn't holding one of those kinds of signs. And so it's, it's obviously a step in the right direction at the very least. Speaking of the kindness of, um, outsiders, when you were, in Westboro, I think uh, probably the same with you, probably the same with a lot of our listeners. I first came to know you and the church through um, the Louis Theroux documentary, who Pandora and I are both obsessed with Louis Theroux, yes. so you'll <laughs> forgive us for asking a Louis Theroux yeah, question. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember distinctly watching that programme and there being some sort of connection yeah. between you two yeah. and that he identified maybe a curiosity or, or, or a restlessness in you and I'm just interested because I know now that you have a friendship the pair of you and I'm interested in knowing about at the time your relationship to him as a documentarian um and how old you were at that point and what your relationship is like with him now um so I was 20 at the time I, w- I really liked him when I was at the church and so it caused me to use the word insidious to describe him because you know the fact that you know people would be kind and so I thought of that verse you know the the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Oh yeah, you call him Wiley. I love yeah. that word. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, um, and and so I. But I. It was really. It was fun. Like I love. We went bowling together. We made egg rolls. You know, in in our kitchen, and we we did a ton of stuff together. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And when he, and I, I write about this too, I cried when they left. It was it was Louis and and there were three, th- the th- the three other members of his team. And I remember, like, we had given, like, his um, his sound guy, this wonderful guy, James Baker, was about to have, his wife was about to have their first child, and, like, we gave him a bunch of, um, like, baby clothes and things like that. Um, and Louis gave me a bunch of his old documentaries, and it was very, like, but I felt, I felt conflicted about that. I felt mm-hmm. like there was something, you know, wrong with that. And I just, you know, well, he's a very nice guy, but he's going to hell, and... But Louis was was really wonderful and and actually very helpful in the writing of this book. I, I sent him an early draft, and uh, he had a lot of really valuable feedback and and said some really you know fascinating things about about how 
some of the stuff that I've been doing since I left, I started working with law enforcement organizations, um, working on like questions of, you know, de-radicalization and hate crimes and counterterrorism. And he talked about, Louis talked about that as well, about he, and he thought that it would be a, a really valuable contribution to those conversations because it's, it's such a question right now because of how much extremism and how more mainstream those extreme beliefs are becoming. Um, so it, it, he's just incredibly wonderful and I'm, I'm super grateful to have him as a friend. I wanted to ask you about forgiveness, which is such a kind of defining pillar of Christianity. Writing this book and becoming a public figure must have made you vulnerable. Um, I mean, I was listening to an interview with you uh, this week where the interviewer is quite angry still at you. And uh, some would say rightly so in terms of of what she felt your actions were and what you represent. And that must be hard to confront and to deal with so publicly. And I just wanted to know about the nature of forgiveness and how you feel now in, ter- in terms of your former self and your former beliefs and the church itself. Um, so I, it is a very real, you know, possibility every time I talk about these things that I will encounter someone who was personally um, hurt by what we did at Westboro. And so I am constantly confronting the person that I was and the, the actions that I took and the ways that I was cruel to other people. And that is not an easy thing. Mm-hmm. It's not easy to look back, you know, very clear eyed at, at, at what I did and to you know, and it's something that for me, it's the funeral protests are the hardest, um, are the hardest things for me to, to think about and to consider. And now when I, I never really went to funerals at, when I was at Westboro, I think maybe one or two for people I didn't really know or and wasn't close to. And, you know, now when I go, I just become an emotional wreck. There is no, I, I cannot help flashing back to those, those protests. And my husband, I, we were watching television and I left for a minute and I came back and there was a military film on the, um, he had, that he had turned on. And my first inst- instinct was to tell him to, to change the channel. Like I didn't, I didn't want to see this. And then I re- like recognized, okay, like I, I'm, I'm going to watch this. We're going to like, I need to confront this, this feeling. And the story was, it was based on a true story. And, you know, as one, as the film was lone survivors, like as one by one, these, these, um, soldiers are, are killed. Um, you know, and the, the language is hearkening back to all of the parodies and things that we wrote standing outside of those funerals, singing praises to IEDs and RPGs. And, and you know, people are, we, we turn them into circuses, you know, it, not all of them and not every time, but anytime there were counter protesters, it became like a game trying to show our signs about, you know, playing flag soccer. We absolutely turned those, those funerals and made them about us and our message. And, by the end of the film, you know, I'm just barely keeping it together. And then when I see that this is, it was based on a true story and they're, they're showing images of the soldiers and their families, their wives and their children and their pets. And I just lost it. And my husband hugged me and he said, I know why you're crying, but you have a lot of years left to make the world a better place. And so I don't, to answer your question about forgiveness, I don't expect forgiveness from anyone. I do not take it as a given. I don't think that it's something that I can earn back or something, you know, to, you know, people's forgiveness. But, but I, I know that all I can do, I know that I can't change the past. All I can do is 
whatever I can and use any opportunity that I can to try to repair some of the damage that I did when I was there. And that's what I'm dedicated to doing. Um, sometimes people ask me if I forgive my family and I, I don't, I don't think about it at any of that in terms of forgiveness, because I know, I know who they are and what they came from. And that in many ways, my mom's generation, their upbringing was even more extreme than mine. And I, I just see it as, you know, these things are facts. They happened. And now the question is, what can we do to make things better? And so that is, that is where I try to focus my attention and, and not spend too much time, you know, filled with regret. I use that, those feelings to, to, as a, as a motivator to, to keep, to keep working. Megan, thank you so much for joining us thank on the Hilo. Unfollow is such a beautiful, honest and curious book. And I think you're incredibly brave for telling your story and trying to change things through the work that you do for other people. Unfollow, A Journey from Hatred to Hope, Leaving the Westboro Baptist Church is published by Riverrun and is available to buy now. Thank you for listening to the Hilo. I've taken on the responsibility this week of fucking up the sign off, as I always do you should subscribe to us on iTunes. <laughs> you can get in touch with us via email, thehiloshow at gmail.com or you can tweet us at thehiloshow. That wasn't too stilted, was it? No, wonderfully elongated. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.